0: It happens in the blink of an eye.
1: It felt like we just dropped out of the sky and hit the ground. Immediately inside the plane, total chaos.
0: A moment in time that changes your life forever. When you see the pictures of the car, I don't see how anyone could survive. Often these moments are just the beginning of a new world for the people who experience them. And you know the outcome is going to be drastic, but yet you still know that you have to do it. Each episode of Just a Moment examines someone's life-changing experience and explores how they navigated through that moment to discover a new normal. And I see beauty now. This is me. I promise you will hear compelling, raw stories that may help you navigate through your own life's journey if you'll give me Just a Moment. Hi, hey everyone, and welcome to Just a Moment. The story you're about to hear in this episode is an important one. Each day, 22 U.S. military veterans commit suicide. Melissa Caduti could have been among those statistics. She tried, twice in fact, to take her own life after a traumatic injury caused her life to spiral. Melissa is not who you picture when you think of a U.S. Air Force Staff Sergeant. She is petite, just five feet tall, but she is as tough as they come. And she's had to call on that strength time after time during her life. What she's learned and what she's accomplished against all odds will truly inspire you. I started the conversation by asking her why she left college her sophomore year to volunteer for the US Air Force. I
1: had a lot of fun
0: my freshman year
1: of college. (laughs) Way too much fun my freshman year of college. And going into my sophomore year of college is when 9-11 happened. So I I had no direction. I, I wanted to be an English teacher. I wanted to be a veterinarian. And then I heard veterinarians have to put dogs down. And I'm thinking, I can't do that. I can't even listen to a dog getting hurt. So I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I was really unsure with my life at that point in time. And I was having... A little too much fun to have direction or find purpose at that point in time. My brother was going to the University of Toledo, my older brother, and my stepbrother was on a plane going to basic training on 9-11. So I dropped out and enlisted in the military and my older brother dropped out from UT and I was at BG and enlisted in the military.
0: So all three siblings <laughs> were in the military. Three out of six. Yeah.
1: Three out of six of us, yes and my mother had to send my older brother and I off two weeks apart. What branch? I was in the Air Force. So I left for the military and I was really good at it.
0: (laughs) Where did you go first? Where did you go for training? Where you left Toledo and
1: you went where? San Antonio, Texas. I went to basic training at San Antonio, Texas and I left June 24th of 2002
0: and how long is basic training for the Air Force?
1: Then it was six weeks, so, and it was so much fun. I got my, I, I had fun, who says that? I received my Airman's Coin on my birthday at basic training, so that was, That was the moment I realized you'll have purpose from this day forward and you Mm. don't have to wander anymore. Even though not all that wander are lost, oh, I was. I had no moral compass, no compass period until that day, August 2nd of 2002.
0: What was it about getting that coin and about making it through that six weeks that made you say, okay, my life is going in a much better direction right now? It was my partner in crime. Uh, Her name was Amber Roush and we
1: were in basic together and we were element leaders together and she was standing next to me when I got it and everybody knew it was my birthday and we ran the obstacle course that day and we had cadets at training with us and they made my obstacle course hell. I mean they got to the monkey bars and tried to beat me up on the monkey. I mean they made my obstacle course hell. Those cadets came after me for everything and I ended up keeping up with our brother flight and keeping up with the men at that point in time because I was like oh I'm gonna go I'm gonna be the fastest there is I'm gonna be the strongest there is they are not gonna take me out they're not gonna win and Amber was standing next to me and Amber and I had walked in lockstep through the lap but this was on week five so we had walked in lockstep together for five weeks and wherever she was I was wherever I was she was we are still friends to this day so to make it through basic training and then Uh, to both go on to our careers and our lives and you know that was 2002 and to still have that relationship but when I got my airman's coin and our drill sergeant she always thought her and I were a little crazy she called us Maverick and Goose and it was pretty funny (laughs) and our drill sergeant was we were her first from Top Gun yeah you guys were
0: like the female Top Gun yeah
1: and we were um, our we were the our drill sergeant's first flight So she had something to prove, and Amber and I both had something to prove, because Amber was also at the same point of me in life, of what am I doing and where am I going? And my drill sergeant looked at me and handed me my coin and said, are you ready to get your shit together now? Because you got it. You got what it takes to do something with your life. Mm -hmm. And it was at that moment that I was thinking, okay, you have to find purpose. You can no longer be a burden because now you've made it. But you've really made nothing. All you did was hit the start button. It was all I did that day was hit start.
0: How did it feel for you to hear her say that to you, though? I you felt know like crap. that she I, I felt I mean, like <laughs>
1: crap. <laughs> if I felt like crap at first because I'm like, what did I give this woman the first week or two? What kind of impression in life? And she rode me like no tomorrow. And then my brother shows up to basic two weeks later. And every time he got in trouble in his flight, I ended up on my face in trouble in basic. Even though it had nothing to do with me, Two different squadrons. We're not even in the same area of the base. My older brother, Louis, and he went to basic training with a name like Louis Caduti. I mean, that's just torture and hell right there. <laughs> so he would get in trouble, and I'd end up on my face. And my she just rode me and rode me and Amber. So when she said that to me, I'm like, what kind of impression did I give to this woman the first two weeks? She made me an element leader, but also told me, if anybody's going to fail this, it's going to be you. Because I was just a math I was nasty in my own head to myself. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of negative self-talk, a lot of negative feelings about myself. I didn't realize that I had any potential in life to be anything at all. And I was very lost. So when she said that to me, I was thinking, okay, she pulled it out of me, right? You go to basic to get beat down. You couldn't beat me down any farther than I already was. Mm. So every time I got in trouble, every time something happened, every time the flight was punished, I never, I never was afraid, I never thought I'd fail, I never emotionally got upset, I never one day had a lick of emotion through the entire thing. While other girls are crying themselves to sleep or saying they can't do it, you know, I'm the first across the line at the run and I'm turning around going backwards and bringing everybody with me. I was the first across the line at the obstacle course, turned around and went and got everybody else with me. And it, it was like, okay, you literally have no emotion that anybody could hurt you any farther or beat you yeah. down any farther.
0: You felt like you had nothing to lose. I,
1: I literally had nothing to lose yeah. because I had nothing. Hmm. I had nothing except a suitcase full of clothes that was... I didn't even have a phone. I didn't have anything. I had one picture of my grandmother, my rosary, my cross, that I still wear to this day from her, and a suitcase. That was all I had. And it's not because... I was a deprived child, it was because I worked for nothing.
0: Mm-hmm. I pissed away everything that I ever had. Do you think having a female leader like that made any impression on you? Because I'm thinking in 2002, <laughs> I know things have changed a little, but I, you know, it, it's, it's always been tough for women in the military.
1: I think so, because she was also little. She was my size, mm-hmm. and I was a buck fifteen then. Mm-hmm. And Amber weighed probably I think it was one twenty-two. Why I remember that Amber's gonna listen to this and be like, "Seriously, you called me out for how my weight? Seriously?" <laughs> um, but she was so powerful, and and I'm not just saying physically powerful,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but she walked in the room and just had this presence that. Amber and I would look at each other. Not if this is even appropriate to say, but your butt would pucker. You're like, mm-hmm. Oh my god, like everything tensed that you're just yeah. like and I'm thinking to myself, God, is she powerful? She just she commanded in the room that it,
0: respect. It had
1: nothing to do she didn't even open her mouth yet. She didn't even have to. She was a very quiet leader, but when she opened her mouth, oh God, were you afraid? Was it difficult? She was the only female T I that we had. In the entire, um, squadron. So, and we had a lot of feet. We were the first flight that nobody dropped. We didn't lose any women. Mm -hmm. Like, she, she did an incredible job at building us up into something of value. Mm -hmm. At the same time, as she destroyed any feeling you could possibly have about anything, that nothing can hurt you. Or so you think. That has to be a real art. We became unbreakable. So the moment you realized you broke, you didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm except surround yourself with better people
0: so you make it through basic training <laughs> in these six weeks you get this coin you are feeling so much better than you did six weeks earlier yeah. when you arrived there right yes. Like you have something to give now and and you know that you have gifts and talents to share with people yes. you go where Stay at Texas.
1: Okay. I was going to security forces and tech school is in San Antonio, Texas. So I stayed there actually and started tech school for
0: security forces. Right and what back. is that like? What do you do there? It was how long and how long is that?
1: That was 10 weeks then. And I unfortunately was severely injured there.
0: So you were on your way to being a um, security technician? Security for a cop, basically, for lack
1: of a better term, a cop.
0: Tell me what happened. How did you get injured? So if you put your hands behind
1: your back, touch the back of your head. Behind your back down here. Oh, down here. Now touch the back of your head. Right. So I did, with a lot of force, another human's body
0: so in other words your arms are down back behind like around your spine i was handcuffed yeah
1: i was handcuffed for training
0: purposes and somebody lifted your arms way up
1: Mm Mm-hmm. one of them
0: and what happened
1: my shoulder my right shoulder went to basically the center of my chest and my arm was still hanging on the back of me i passed out i don't remember a lot uh the pain You know, your body reacts in certain ways and I passed out, but they said it sounded like a gunshot across the room and I woke up and I had a belt in my mouth across my teeth, somebody holding my hips down and a combat boot right here across my chest. And all I remember is the guy saying, Airman Caduti, I can't move you until I can put things back together. And he said, one, two, holy F, I can't do this, and kicked it back, my shoulder out. And I passed out again. (laughs) And I wake up and I'm in the ER. So, ten days later wasn't even quite 10 days. I had a a shoulder surgery
0: called a bank heart shift where they take your, because my shoulder kept falling out then. Okay, one second. Can I go back for just a moment to Mm -hmm. why did that happen? Was it an accident during the training? Did somebody do that to you on purpose?
1: That is a question that I think I will ask for the rest of my life. I know that the female I was training with was upset. I know she was frustrated. And I know she was not sure she was going to make it through training. And I know she knew I was because there's a few things that I was good at. Shooting, fighting, and being yelled at.
0: So you were doing an exercise, a training exercise, and she was behind you and you were in the handcuffs with your hands down back behind I'm you. laying on
1: the ground face first. And
0: somehow... She's almost like jackpotting, you know, or uh, slot machining your arm. Backwards. Yeah, backward up over you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you get to the emergency room, and they tell you what. What has happened to your shoulder? What are your injuries? So
1: I don't remember a lot of what happened there. I mean, I'm very cloudy and foggy at this point in time. I think I'm on every narcotic (laughs) note to man. Mm -hmm. Things just weren't well. They take me back to my dorm. And that night, my brother shows up. And nobody called him out of VOD school, but he got into the dorms. He's like, my name is Airman Kaduti. I am her brother. I think I need to see my sister. And it was at that point that I started to understand what happened because when he got to my dorm, my roommate was there and she started to explain to him everything that happened in the hospital. And I was starting to understand what happened to me and that I was needing a pretty big surgery and that I may no longer be in the military after that. Mm. So... I went and had the surgery, and I spent 10 days in the hospital after that. That was really rough, but I didn't understand how severe my injury was at that point in time.
0: What did you understand? What was the injury that they were trying to operate on you for as you understood it? So
1: every time I stood up, my shoulder literally would fall forward. So my shoulder would fall out, and my arm would kind of sink. So it kind of looked like... Um, I almost looked like Gumby for a minute. Remember the, the yeah. stretch arm strong, one of those things. My shoulder would fall forward and my arm would kind of fall backwards. So everything was separating and torn in there. And I, I couldn't keep it in place. Like There was nothing I could do. I went to the bathroom and over to pull my pants down, my shoulder comes out. I would go to bed and I'd roll over and my shoulder falls out. So it, and I was waiting for the surgeon, the orthopedic surgeon, to be able to do it. And he did what was called a bank heart shift. So just take the ligaments from the front, wrap them to the back, from the back to the front. And I fought to get back on teams. I wanted to stay a cop. I loved what I did. I was a really hard worker and I wanted nothing more than that.
0: So. I fought back. Did they, did they think that that was going to fix the problem, what they did?
1: So they thought that I was going to be discharged from the military right then and there. Uh-huh. And I did not. Mm-hmm. I My physical therapist in the military was sensational. I went every single day. And they worked me to no end. And Amber, back from basic training, she graduated tech school in the middle of my rehab and came to one of my physical therapy sessions when she was driving her Mustang. And she said, you'll be all right you got it. I promise you got it. And I made teams back on teams the next day. So I was standing outside the office getting ready to go back to teams. And they said, nope, we're going to ship you off to Shepard Air Force Base. You're going to go to the health field
0: instead. You're not going to get to graduate as a cop. So that had to be really disappointing for you because that's what you really wanted to do, right? I was devastated. I was devastated. Because of your injury? Is that what they were saying? Mm -hmm. That you would be better suited to do? That I was going
1: to be too high risk. Mm -hmm. So they decided to cross train me. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm out here doing one-handed push-ups running a five minute, 45 second mile. I've outdid everybody in a PT test and I can do 35 pull-ups and you're going to tell me I can't do this?
0: Right. You still were not really able to use your arm the way you did pre-injury. Correct. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. I but you were compensating for I it. I was coming back. Ways. And
1: yeah. I was in better shape than other people standing there, so I was
0: mad. Did they think that you're with... PT and continual practice and everything, that it was going to come back all the way?
1: They did, which is why they recommended me to stay in the military. Mm-hmm. So I went to Shepard Air Force Base, went to school for health services management for six weeks, graduated at the top of my class. I aced the tech school and went to Melmstrom Air Force Base.
0: What does that mean, health services? Like what, what kind of stuff were you being trained to do in that training? I was
1: basically a
0: front desk person. So here you go. You take somebody
1: that never wanted to sit at a desk a day in her life, and you put her at a desk.
0: So where was your mind at this point? Where, What, what headspace were you in as far as your disappointment, your frustration, your anger, your being let down? How were you feeling in that moment about having those dreams kind of taken away from you
1: well right when I got to Malmstrom I was married Mm -hmm. and I was married to a cop thank God I was married to a cop because he was crazy and I could live vicariously through him and I could still shoot my weapons I could still do everything that I wanted to do but unfortunately I landed right back in surgery so I had no time to think of anything Mm -hmm. because less than one year later I found myself right back in an OR Okay, why? What happened? My arm just kept coming out. It
0: didn't fix the way that you... No,
1: we were doing a field exercise and we were getting ready to load a patient in the helicopter and she kind of moved in a certain way that put a little bit more weight onto my right arm and my shoulder fell out. I was so mad and I look at her and she looks at me and I'm like, did that seriously just say... Like I was so mad and she just put it right back in. She just did a reduction right there and was like, you'll be fine. We're out here for a few more days. You'll be fine. And I wasn't fine. My arm didn't move after that. Mm. So I went back in for another surgery. And at that point in time, I started to think in my head, something is maybe actually wrong because I shouldn't have just fallen out like that. So
0: something's going on. Yeah. And it's been a year since Mm -hmm. your original injury. You've diligently rehabbed yes. and you've had good luck so far with yep. it until that other incident, I was right?
1: back to playing volleyball. I was back to being able to feel to fire a weapon. I mm-hmm. was back to boxing. I mean, I was back to being a powerlifter. There wasn't anything that I wasn't able to do that I wasn't doing better than when I was, than before I was hurt. I was in better shape than I was when I was injured. So what did the doctors tell you about
0: this injury? What happened and why? So you... they
1: they said nothing. I mean, it was just, we're going to do what's called a capsular shrinkage, which basically put shrink wrap in there, make the capsule a little bit smaller to make it like a, like so it can't fall out again. Okay. And I'll tell you, it's never fallen out again. Like it's
0: tight. But right it again. doesn't prevent you from doing anything. I mean, you're able to do pretty much what you need to do at that point mm-hmm. with the fix, right? Absolutely. Okay. So that was
1: September of 2003. October of 05, things got very bad for me physically. and I couldn't feel my arm, I couldn't raise my arm, I couldn't move my arm, I couldn't lift my arm. I couldn't do anything. and I was getting scared. And I'd been hospitalized twice now for five day stints of stroke-like symptoms.
0: And you were doing what at Maelstrom? You were doing your health services? Mm-hmm,
1: I was work And I yep, and I worked in flight medicine. I loved everything that I did. It was fantastic, and I was going to deploy soon. And then all of a sudden, I can't move my arm.
0: So what what happened? Did you just wake up and it wasn't mm-hmm. movable? Yep, I woke up and I couldn't feel it. And I get admitted to the hospital
1: for the second time with stroke-like symptoms. The right side of my face is drooping, I can't feel my arm, I don't feel well, something's wrong.
0: And that's the same arm that you yes. already had had the other two surgeries yes. done on, right? Yes.
1: So they, th- they ran everything. They were doing everything in my brain. They're like, it has to be something in her brain. Maybe she's got epilepsy. Maybe she's got something has to be in her brain because it's actually not a stroke, but she looks like she's having a stroke.
0: They were aware of what had happened to your mm-hmm. arm already. Did they think? Was there anything, any connection that they no. were looking at as far as what had already happened to you?
1: No, mm-hmm. because everything pointed to... A neurological issue. Mm-hmm. Everything did. So I went to Billings, Montana, four hours away to the orthopedic surgeon there and had him fix my rotator cuff. Did they think that was what was causing this no. stroke-like thing or no. you were
0: just going to get that fixed? I was just
1: going to get that okay. fixed at the same time as I'm having a neurological workup and a cardiac workup and all this other stuff so they could figure it out because I had a very abnormal heart rhythm. They thought I had a minor heart attack at that point in time. Everything was going weird Mm -hmm. with no rhyme or reason. So I had this simple rotator cuff surgery October 4th of 2005. November 4th of 2005 I was on a rocker board in physical therapy with my physical therapist Karin Steinke and she's important in this entire story because she ultimately saved my life. And I was on the rocker board and I rocked right, and my arm flushed navy blue. And blew up to the, I mean, I looked like I had Italian sausages for fingers.
0: This is your sore arm that you had been- That I had just had surgery on. Yes. Yep. Okay.
1: yep. And it flushed navy blue. And my neck was starting to swell on the right side, my face was drooping on the right side, and she just goes, this is not a stroke. They took me to the emergency room at the civilian hospital, they bring in cardiovascular surgeons, vascular surgeons. They brought the kitchen sink in the room. My heart rate's out of control. My blood pressure at that point in time was 190 over 110. They're like, we have got to, do- something is wrong with her. So they put me on bed rest for 30 days. So I'm doing manual physical therapy. So Karen is still working on my arm, trying to get it there. It's blue. She's taping it to hold it in place because now it's falling again. So. It, there's a mess she calls my
0: surgeon in Billings now this is November in Montana but you have not had that problem with it falling since you had that capsule yes. surgery right so yes. that was a new yes I couldn't hold it up anyway like I had apparently learned
1: my body to protect it and just keep it hoisted mm-hmm. and at this point in time I'm exa- my body is exhausted. Mm so she calls my surgeon in billings and he's like there's no way this is happening there's nothing like there isn't anything so i'm seeing all of these docs in great falls i'm constantly in the hospital on the civilian side running every test they could possibly dream of so finally the surgeon in billings is like drive her down here what makes it so hard to get there is i'm active duty so number one i need orders number two i need a non-medical and a medical attendant to go with me because it's a four and a half hour drive Mm -hmm. In Billings, Montana, to Great Falls, Montana, there's not a lot, and we are covered in snow. Mm-hmm. So, like, who, how yeah, are this we, is November, how can right? we, yeah, mm-hmm. so, like, how can we do this? So, it took until December to actually get there.
0: So, I got to Billings, December 3rd. What were you doing for that whole month? Just bed rest, as they told bed you? Bed rest,
1: and she was manually moving my arm. Mm-hmm. And heat. Because I was in so much pain,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I couldn't sit. I couldn't stand. I couldn't walk. I couldn't, I was, the pain was just out of this world that I couldn't... I thought I could not function. I thought I was going to... I'm like, just kill me. Just just kill me. This is awful.
0: Did you have any idea what it might be? No. I mean, were there other symptoms? Did anything else hurt? Was nope. it just the arm that was hurt? Just, my face was drooped. Okay.
1: So at this point, I look like I'm having a constant still, stroke. Yeah. Yes. Yep. I couldn't use it. I could not use my arm at all. And I was it still very blue? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was blue for 30 days. I mean, weren't they worried about that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I was short of breath. I could not breathe. I could not breathe. It was miserable. So I get to Billings. I think it was December 2nd. December 3rd, I see the orthopedic surgeon, and he hits the oh, shit button. Like, hard. Calls one of the cardiovascular surgeons there and says, you need to see her right now she's been like this 30 days. So then I'm laying on this table and they're coming in to do a test. And you hear when you're going to hear a good blood flow, you hear the mm-hmm. all you hear and I've been in the medical field long enough to know this is not a good sound. Is and I'm like what what was that? She goes, "Well, I said Well, you want an artery or a vein, tell me you're on a vein." She's like, "No, that that's your artery. I'll be right back." i'm on orders i have to be back in great falls montana the, by the by that night we call command and they're like without anybody saying you have to be there you need to drive back four and a half hours so she calls a surgeon he's in the or so my husband at the time is also on orders he's active duty he goes we need to turn around and my girlfriend that's with me is also on orders so we all need to go back So
0: he drives me back in a blizzard. For people who are not military, explain exactly what you're talking about and what the repercussions are if you are not where you're supposed to be. Because I think for people that don't know about the military, that, that doesn't sound like common sense at all.
1: Right. So if we did not report back to our flights the next day, we'd be AWOL. So we have to go back. Even if your life is
0: at risk? At this
1: point, we didn't know my life was at risk. We knew the sound was bad, but we didn't know that my life was at risk at Mm -hmm. that point in time. So we start driving back, and it's a blizzard. And we are 30 minutes out of Great Falls, Montana. And the surgeon picks up the phone and calls me, and he says, "Uh, Airman Kaduti, if you aren't here and on an OR table by tomorrow, I don't know if you're going to die or lose your arm. Oh, good. Okay. Can you call my flight commander and tell him that? Because now we have to hurry up and do this. So now they try to life flight me. Everything's grounded. It's just a whiteout. So my husband goes, we're fucking turning around and we're going. So he turns the car around and we go back. Mm-hmm. Because at this point in time, I may not make it, right? So we get, it's an it's a four-hour drive. Eight and a half hours later, we arrive back in Billings, Montana. And I'm in surgery the next day. So... December, they took my first rib out and cut two of my scalene muscles on the right side in half because I was diagnosed with thoracic outlet syndrome and usually it's only arteries, veins, or nerves are compressed, but I had all three, which was why I looked like I was having a constant stroke.
0: Was this related to that very first injury that you had with the handcuff incident? So it's all, mine is trauma related. Mm -hmm. My
1: TOS is trauma related. So that was December. April of 2006, my left arm turns navy blue. So they do the same surgery in April on the left arm that they did on the right arm. Okay, that
0: one was not injured, it was correct? Not. So what is going on on that side? So then? he
1: said that the trauma was so significant in my chest that it shifted everything and moved everything, and that my scar tissue was just rapidly spreading everywhere. Mm-hmm. So they had to take out the rib. Um, and both scaling muscles on the left side in August of 06, both of my arms turned navy blue.
0: So, so you've had this um surgery, and just so people know, basically taking out the rib and what they're trying to do in your scaling muscles, they're trying to make room for all of those arteries and yes, made the nerves in yes, there, right? Yes, so that you aren't. Turning blue on each side. and I can
1: have the use of my arms because mine, like I said, involved all three. So I didn't just, you know, other people with thoracic ulcer syndrome, if it's their vein or their artery, they still have the function, Mm -hmm. right? Like they still have the function, they get a blood clot, which is not good, I'm not saying it's good, but they still have function. Yeah, it's just an issue of blood flow. Yours
0: was an issue of blood flow and operation. Yes,
1: Yes, I had no function of my arms. They were not moving, and I could not move them. No matter what I did, I could not get my arms to move. So in August of '06, they both went blue, and this is where Karin, my physical therapist, became my angel. So she found a guy in Denver, Colorado, named Dr. Richard Sanders. And he had studied Thoracic Outlet Syndrome almost his entire cardiovascular career. And he was at Rose Medical Center. And she convinced, she called him, told him my whole story, sent him my records, and talked to our uh, our leadership team and said, we're sending her to Denver. So I went and saw him and I ended up in the OR the next day for both arms this time. So this time he cut out in half both of my pec minor muscles. So your pec minor muscles help keep your shoulder blades in place if you're gonna do a push up, pull up, push away from a desk, mm-hmm. um, push off a chair, push off the floor and he's taken both my pec minors out. I had instant relief. I woke up, my arms weren't blue, was a walk in the park surgery. (laughs) Life was beautiful. I had no pain. I was great. The military decided I was no longer fit for duty December of that year, even though I was in my head fine. Mm -hmm. So December, well, it was Thanksgiving. I was given a two week notice that I'd be retired December 9th of 2006.
0: What was that notification like for you?
1: I felt like a failure. I did, because I didn't get to do anything except be a burden again.
0: And it sucked. Mm -hmm. So how did you work through that disappointment and how did you work through that feeling of failure? I tried
1: to kill myself, that was the first time. That was the first time. I got a job at the Great Falls Clinic um, as an orthopedic scheduler. So I now felt like I was nothing and no one. I couldn't have kids. I had no purpose. I'm living in Montana, which I love Montana. My marriage is already in shambles, and it hasn't even really begun because I was not physically or mentally in the right place. Mm -hmm. So I took every pill I had.
0: So did you wake up from that? Did you I fall did. asleep and then wake up and you I, weren't dead? I drove Is... myself
1: to the ER. Mm. I did. I told them what I had did and at first they were like you're fine. I'm like okay, I know, but here's everything I just took. And some of the things that I took were just going to make me very 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 sick. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know that. I was angry. I was very very angry. And I started to come out of it a little bit, you know, and get a little bit better and feel like I had a little bit more purpose and a little bit whatever. I magically wound up pregnant after I was told I couldn't have kids, and I lost my third child then, because I had been pregnant two other times before 2004, and I lost my third child then, and I was 20 weeks pregnant, and I hemorrhaged. And I had already heard his heartbeat and felt him and named him. So that was a few years later, and I went right back into that depression. I didn't get off my floor. I laid there. My boss showed up at my house and forced me into the shower, which it was, it was brutal. And then right after I lost him, my left arm turned navy blue again. So... It was April that I lost him. In October, things got very bad for me.
0: You were still in Montana at this point? I was. And your husband's still in the military? No,
1: he got out before I did. Okay. He did.
0: Did you seek mental help at all?
1: Never. Yeah. I just got pissed off. I didn't really talk to anybody. I didn't really have a relationship with my parents, uh, my siblings. I missed... Graduations, birthdays.
0: Did you recognize it in that moment or do you just recognize it looking back? I did not know it in that moment because I did a really good
1: job of pretending like I was okay. Mm. I did a really good job of it because I knew that if I didn't, I'd become a burden again. And I was headed into this surgery and they made me take a PsycheVal to have this surgery done because it was a case study.
0: So, this is now related to your arm turning blue mm-hmm. again. Yeah.
1: And I had to take that psyche valve. So, this is the first time I've talked to anybody from mental health because, mm-hmm. I'm like, why am I taking the psyche valve? I don't understand. Like, I'm having a surgery. What do I need a psyche valve for? And they're like, because this is not going to be easy. And I don't think you understand what you're getting into. So, at this point in time, my anger was actually a good thing mm-hmm. because I was too stupid. And too angry and too naive to ask the questions of the what if, mm-hmm. to realize that this could have a really, really bad outcome for the rest of my life. And I passed, failed, this, I was crazy enough to go through with it, put it that way.
0: What was the risk of the surgery that they were telling you that you were willing to take?
1: Uh, that I wouldn't wake up, I'd end up permanently paralyzed. My breathing would be permanently paralyzed, so they'd permanently paralyze my diaphragm. They could puncture my lung, and I could have a collapsed lung, or I would wake up without an arm. And I said, and the alternative is, he goes, you're probably going to die anyway. So I'm like, great, let's do it.
0: And you wake up from the risky surgery, and they tell you what?
1: I woke up, and he's like, you're going to be here for a while. And all I knew was I had to stay in Denver then for another 30 days after I would get out and go to this physical therapy program. And it was... Awful, And the spazzing in the back, you can't breathe. When you say it was awful, do you mean the pain was yes. awful? Like you can't breathe. You can't function. I couldn't sit down in the toilet. I couldn't stand up. I couldn't bathe. Here I am again. Now I can't bathe myself again. I can't wipe my own butt again. Thank God I was constipated. Because, because your
0: arms don't work that way? I could
1: not twist. Yeah, I could not move my body. It mm. was so excruciating the Im- there are on a scale of zero to 10 I would have wrapped I was like just put a bullet in me take me out back and put a bullet in me this is the wor- now I know I had to take a psyche valve are you crazy enough to sustain this amount of pain are you and when I got back to great falls this was 45 days later I still had a drain in me and they sent me to this physical therapist who was afraid to touch me so I find Karn's phone number in my, in my cell phone, and I call her. And I'm like, I don't know if you remember me. I haven't, you know, I, I left the military three years ago. haven't talked to her since. And she's like, how could I freaking forget you? <laughs> so I explain the surgery to her. She is working at a clinic off base now as a physical therapist. And I said, will you, will you work with me? So I go in and see her, and I'm in a wheelchair. I can't move anything. And Karen goes, whew, we got a long way back, kid. A long way back. And a year later, I was back to running and lifting and boxing. I was in pain. The pain never goes away. But I was doing good. Mm-hmm. So this is 2010.
0: What well, I mean, a year is a long time to have to get up and face the day every day in that kind of pain and try to work yourself back up into the shape that you are Mm -hmm. trying to be in so you can function and live your life, right? Right. So Melissa, in that year, I mean, you already have had, you know, a couple of moments of uncle, you know, I give up here, which you didn't really give up. (laughs) You kept going forward. But in this year, what was it that kept you moving forward? Carn? Because
1: she invested so much time and energy into me, and I'm, at this point, a a one-of-a-kind. You know, I mean, the surgery is not normal. It's not anything in the books. To continuously get reoccurring thoracic outlet syndrome, as often as I was, is unheard of. If I didn't have her, I would have quit. But she never gave up on me. She was, uh, and we fought. Oh my God, did we fight. I was, I was that woman's probably worst damn nightmare ever. I was. And Dr. Sanders, who did my surgery in '06, was Annist's partner in all this. And that man called me every single week for seven months. Wow. And never stopped. So things got better, and then in 2012, my right arm went blue. That was in July. What arm was it? The right. Mm -hmm. And it unblued. So I was like, this is great. We're doing good, right? So I call Karn and she's like, let's just get into physical therapy. Let's just get working. I'm like, okay, let's just get working. Like, let's just not go backwards. Let's work, okay? Mm -hmm. Called Dr. Anist and Dr. Sanders and they they agreed with the plan. They're like, let's just keep moving. October went blue for a few days. Came unblue. I'm like, okay, we're just going to work harder. (laughs) We're just going to just keep the pedal to the metal and work harder. That time it didn't take a couple days, it took another surgery. So I headed um, to surgery in February. So no, that was 2011, because I went to surgery February of 2012. So I had only been good for a year. So I went to surgery February of 2012, and I had my rib had regenerated, and my scar tissue from my scalenes was so great that they removed both instead of just leaving them in half and recut out that first rib. Mm-hmm. I drove home to Great Falls 48 hours later, went into therapy and rehab and stuff July again it went blue again I got to Denver in same De- arm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I got to Denver in December because we tried physical therapy that whole time because we really did not want to take both lat muscles out that was that was a as a pivotal moment for me in life
0: was right there. So in December... Tell me why. Tell me why that is so important, what those do for you and what the consequences were going to be for you to take those out.
1: I remembered what I felt like and how much I'm limited now in that year, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was limited in that year since having my left lat out and the amount of pain, I mean, the pain takes me to my knees every day to this day. It takes me to my knees and the, amount of spasms that you get, the inability to breathe, you'll just be standing there and all of a sudden you can't. And it's awful. And I have to excuse myself from a meeting or a room or something. And I have to walk away because I can't. And I have to do it to this day. Like it's so bad. and I don't want anybody to see me that way. And I was thinking if you double this, I'm not sure I can handle it. I'm not. And my husband was terrified, and he had started to treat me with kit gloves. Mm -hmm. So I, at that moment, treated myself like glass. And that's all I thought I was, was just waiting for one more brick, Mm -hmm. and I was going to shatter and cave. And that's what was scary. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know what other alternatives there were. So Tim, my husband, was like, I don't want you to do it. And Dr. Anist goes... I make zero promises either way, and that was it.
0: So you had to decide.
1: I did. So I went home, and we drove back to Denver on Christmas Day, and December 27th I had surgery, and I asked Dr. Sanders, who was retiring, I said, I I can't do this without you. There's something about him. I needed that man in that room. I said, I can't and he wasn't doing surgery anymore, but he came. And I woke up and he was in the room when I woke up. That night, I didn't take the, I was declining all pain meds. I'm like, I don't want to be asleep any, I don't want to go to sleep. And I FaceTimed my family, because they were having Christmas. And I have not been home for Christmas since 2002. And I had never, told them how bad I was and I got a weird feeling to FaceTime them and my poor nephew answers the phone Connor (laughs) I'll never forget the look on his face ever I they're like you know you got 14 days here I'm like I can't I need to go home I need to go to Montana I need to go to my therapist get me the hell out of this hospital They're like, well, your surgeons aren't in. It's Christmas Eve. I'm like, find them. I don't care where they are. Find them. I pulled my chest tube out. Get me a surgeon and get me out of here. So they did. They called him off the ski mountain and he came in. Dr. Aniston. He's like, you are a pain in the ass. I'm like, I am, but I need out. Like, I am losing it. I need out of here. The guy in the room next to me had coded and died. So they discharged me. Give me enough pain pills to get me home and through this drive from Denver, Colorado to Great Falls, Montana, and I will go home and see Karin. I'm done. And that's exactly what we did. The moment I walked in the door to Karin at physical therapy, I was like, oh, you're gonna be fine. You're gonna make it. You're gonna be okay. You are. And Tim and I were really bad. We were in really bad shape for the next year and a half. We were, I was in therapy. Karin got me to run again, which was exciting. So I'm getting better, and he's treating me like glass because he was afraid for me. Mm-hmm. Rightfully so. Look at everything the man has stood by me for. Mm-hmm. He has every right to fear what will happen next. He feared I would get hurt because I'd push too hard, and I would fear that I would kill myself if I actually continued to feel the way that I did. And... We agreed to divorce on our anniversary.
0: You just couldn't see a way through that together. The
1: very thing I wanted to do was the very thing he thought would be the end of me. Mm -hmm. And I knew what he wanted me to do would be the end of me Mm -hmm. because I did play Russian roulette. September 4th of 2013 and we divorced shortly after.
0: Was he there when you did that?
1: No, he was a firefighter and he was at work. We went golfing the next day and we got a phone call from a very dear friend that I did not know had stepped on an IED in Afghanistan. And I had not heard that man's voice since 2006. And he said, I don't know why, but I think you need me. He said, there's the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program. I'm a part of it. I got blown up. Here's what it is. I think it's time you do something different. He didn't know anything about me. He didn't know anything about my life. He didn't know anything that I had been through. He just had a feeling that he should call me, and he did. Mm. And I went to camp, to the Wounded Warrior camp that February. Where is that? That one was at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas. Okay. And then I went to try out for Team USA in April. Team USA what? For the Invictus Games. Yes. The day before that my sister woke up to a very bad delivery of her baby Mm -hmm. that was going to be my goddaughter. So I jumped on a plane from Montana to Cleveland, Ohio, and I could not stomach losing my sister. And I, at that moment, remembered every alone second I had felt because I kept everybody secluded. And I was angry at them for never showing up but you can't show up for someone that doesn't call, mm-hmm. and she called me, and we hadn't had that type of relationship, but she called me, so I showed up,
0: and you know, I. How was that reunion with her? Um, when I
1: walked through the door, she crumbled, and I took her, and I just I held her, and I laid in bed with her, and uh, they brought me my goddaughter, and there's a picture of that actually of my goddaughter and I the very first picture of Sophie and I. And my brother-in-law just looked at me and he goes, I don't know why, but I'm so glad you're here right now. And it was really cool, it was really cool. I didn't know if I'd make it there and get to trials. And it was a moment that I had to choose that if I didn't make it to try out, would I be angry with my choice? Mm -hmm. And that was that moment that I realized, you're angry because you've been alone and you've been alone because you chose to be secluded. So if you finally start to involve
0: you may survive. Was it a breakthrough moment for you to understand I do have bigger fish to fry in my life still? So I think it's kind of twofold, to be honest
1: with you. Sometimes it hurts like hell to relive all those moments. Mm -hmm. And I can't go backwards, and I don't want to. Somebody asked me if we could just change it all tomorrow, wave a magic wand and it's gone, or you could wake up and you have a different life, what would you do? I don't want a different life. I want my life. Every struggle, every pain, every heartache, every everything that I've been through, I want every last bit of it. Cost me three marriages, three pregnancies, no kids, a distant relationship with my family for over 10 years. Like I wa- I'd take every last bit of it all over again. When she called me, I, the only thing I thought to myself was, this is a game changer. This is a, a game changer to finally show up, but I always did show up. So it wasn't like I didn't always show up, but I was able to show up in a different capacity, in a different mindset. For whatever reason, at that moment, I was no longer angry for the first time since 2002. So April 2nd of... Did two- the
0: camp help you with that? I
1: hate, yes, yes, because you get to meet a whole lot of people that normalize your pissed offness. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. And they look at you and say, you're not broken, you're different. You're not disabled, you're able just differently. Leave your baggage out the door and get your shit together and move on, because we need somebody, somebody else to do something at this camp. Mm-hmm. And it was at that moment that I'm like, you have a voice, that's bigger than yourself and you have a purpose that's way bigger than you will ever be so why did you join the military in the first place that got you to this moment
0: so that was a big epiphany there with your sister
1: april 2nd of 2014 i won't ever forget it
0: at Wounded Warrior Camp, is that where you heard of the Invictus Games and somebody, there. somebody encouraged you to try out for it?
1: They announced it there in, at the camp in March, and they said you will all be invited back, so you can try out for the Wounded Warrior Games, or the Warrior Games, and you can try out for the Invictus Games. So mm-hmm. I was like, sweet, this is going to be fun, right? So a
0: try out for both at the same time? Yep, mm-hmm.
1: yep. Every branch of service was doing it. And when they read my name for the Air Force team, I did not expect to make it because on our one miler, one of our gals was a breast cancer survivor and she, and we're racing for, we're racing for a spot, right? I mean, you're, you're competing mm-hmm. against your own like for a spot. And I know that I run a seven minute mile at that point in time and she's struggling. And I stopped and I went back and I took bronze to her silver because I was going to make her cross that finish line if I had to drag her across it. She wasn't going to quit. There was no way.
0: That was at the games? At that the was trials. at the trials. That was at okay. the trials.
1: Okay. And where I excelled at was firing a weapon, of course. <laughs> but they weren't going to bring that there. And so I sprinted, fired a weapon, played volleyball. So I was shocked when I made Team USA but somebody saw something. I obviously had something that they wanted, which I was really happy about because then I did medal at the Invictus Games in England.
0: So for people who don't know, explain what the Invictus Games are.
1: Sure. So Prince Harry came over to the States during the Warrior Games. So the Warrior Games were created for ill-injured wounded um, ill, injured, or wounded servicemen and women in the military. So you don't have to be retired. You can be active duty, guard, reserve, whatever. And they compete in Paralympic events against each other for the branches of service. So one year, the UK brought their team over, and he came with them. And he created the Invictus Games from there. So in 2014, it was 15 countries against everybody. So it was, you know, 15 countries in a Paralympic event. And it was extraordinary. Yeah. And we went to England, and it was the inaugural games. And it was probably one of the greatest moments of my life it was so
0: it's basically olympics for wounded warriors para
1: yeah pa- yeah. Para, yeah okay for ill injured or wounded
0: ill injured or wounded yes
1: yes ill injured or wounded
0: so you make team usa i do yeah. and the games are in england. england yes and your events were what i was a sprinter a
1: rower which i Brits are no joke when it comes to rowing. I got my butt, it was intimidating
0: to (laughs) row with Great
1: Britain, let me tell you. Uh, And a power lifter.
0: When you think about that now, looking back on all of those surgeries, all of those times you couldn't even move your hands, and two of the three things that you're doing are with your arms Mm -hmm. at this world competition. Yes. What, I mean, what do you even think of that <laughs> as you? I know what I think of it as me, but I mean, what do you think of that?
1: You know, it, uh, I get asked that question a lot, actually. Like, how do you go from that to hip thrusting 400 pounds and taking home a gold and a hundred and a silver and a powerlifting competition? Like, how do you do that? I don't know. Karin used to say it to me all the time and I would look at her and say shut up you've no idea what I feel like you've no idea how bad this is you've no idea how bad this sucks your mom's not wiping your ass you're not laying down and nobody you can't get off the floor you didn't collapse in the store and somebody had to carry you out you have no idea what I feel like why the hell does she have to? why? why does anybody have to know what I feel like? Why can't they just look at me and say, what are you capable of? And that's what it is. Like my mind quit. Winning at the Invictus Games wasn't what mattered. It was not at all. It was sitting in a room with hundreds of athletes and realizing that our bodies are incredible machines that will not fail if you're mentally strong enough to overcome. If you surround yourself with the right people, your body will respond in ways that you have no idea how in the world it's doing it.
0: So here I am,
1: angry that I can't snatch anymore, right? My roommate in England,
0: she had cancer. Okay, tell us what snatch is. It's a power lift. It's a power lift. It's a power lift, yes. Sorry, it's a power lift.
1: Taking the weight from the ground up over your head in a squat like position, right? I have no lats, so every time I go to do it, the weight just falls backwards mm-hmm. because you there's nothing to there. stop my mm-hmm. arm. I kept telling myself, you can't do this, right? Like, you just, you can't do it. So here Sarah is, she's got one leg. She's an amputee from the hip down, the pelvis down, right? And she just throws it up. I'm like, are you out of your freaking mind right now? Like, this is at our camp, at our because we went to camp before we left for the games. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, Melissa, you have got to change your own mindset. This is ridiculous. And I had moved to Springfield, Illinois, in the middle of training for the Invictus Games. And I, got a co- I hired a coach, and Mike Purdy. And Mike really taught me how incredible my body is and how incredible my body will respond to anything I ask it to do.
0: Did you move there to train with him? Why no. did you move to Springfield? My
1: boss asked me to move with him. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I did. And it was closer to home because mm-hmm. I had... I'd gotten divorced, and I didn't know where I wanted to live. I didn't know where I wanted to fall. I just had, I wanted to get closer because after being with my sister, something in my heart was like, just get a little bit closer. Just get a little bit closer. And I met Mike at the gym, and I was like, here's what I'm doing. Here's what my body's all about. Do you want to coach me to the Invictus Games? He looked up the games. He looked up the Wounded Warriors. He looked at my injury, and he's like, holy how I, sure, I'm in. And the things, I mean, he had me do a pull-up again. And the things that Mike taught me that my body is capable of were extraordinary. Like, I couldn't run more than, like, three to five miles. And now I'm an ultra runner. And he...
0: Which means... I do 50,
1: 50 miles or greater. Okay. Yeah. But I learned at that moment that your body is... A machine that is supposed to move period it just may move differently than somebody else's and that has nothing to do with the fact that I have no lats no first ribs no pec minors now missing part of a pec major I'm able just differently so when people say I could not imagine going through what you've been through nobody's anything is greater than anybody else's and that's what those games taught me do you pick your own
0: events at Invictus, no. or did they pick for you? <laughs>
1: you get to say what you're interested in. I would have never labeled myself a sprinter a day in my life. Mm. I would have put, I did put down powerlifting because I have always lifted heavy. You've done that. Yeah. I've yeah. always lifted heavy, so I wanted to do it again. But I would have never put myself as a sprinter. I am five foot. I am not this long, lanky legs for days person. I am five foot and a brick. Like What was the distance? 100 meters. And how'd you do? I took gold. (laughs) (laughs) But I would have never. I would have never. Yes, she said
0: she took gold.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it's just something you wouldn't do, right? Like, you see sprinters. I'm looking at all these sprinters in the Olympics right now. I'm like, God, their legs are as long as my whole body. (laughs) Like, there's no way.
0: Uh, What about the rowing? So team of what? How many people? Did you say you You're alone? It's just I did a, a team one of one. Minute, I did a
1: one minute and a four minute. The beauty behind Invictus Games is you get to bring two people with you. Mm-hmm. So I brought my sister. And the I, one you went to the hospital yes, to see? Yes. It. And I brought my best friend Amy from the military. So mm-hmm. I brought them over to England with me. And two minutes into that four minute. And I mean, and these, when I say, that the uk soldiers are rowers there is no words to put in (laughs) to describe the insanity behind how fast and strong they are and i'm strong and i'm looking at them like i'm about to get killed and i did and i and i had only started rowing two weeks before yeah so i don't know what the heck i was doing and i look at my sister two minutes in and i must have had the look of sheer panic on my face (laughs) because she comes walking down the stands and she's just doing this like just look at me and staring at her the whole time and i'm like please don't die please don't die so you're
0: not physically in the water no, you're
1: on you're a row You're just on a machine. rower. And they yeah. are intense on yeah. a row machine. I mean, these things are like moving backwards because they're pulling so hard. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Like, i do I can't
0: even believe that rowing is possible for you with everything you've been through, all the surgeries and muscle <laughs> releases and muscle cuts. I didn't and... have
1: time to think about it yeah. until it was over. But I learned from Patrick, our row coach for Team USA, that if my legs are strong, I can row. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I have, so I ended up taking fourth, which I was super excited wow. about because I thought I was going to take last. Wow. The one thing I have is powerful legs mm-hmm. so because it's all I am, right? I'm just, I'm nothing but legs, not tall legs. Let's just clear that up. I'm five <laughs> foot. Like, I, have, I am just Thick. Yeah. You've so, never
0: had trouble with your legs like you no, have with your arms. So no. they've always come through for you. Yeah. So gold in the sprint, in the 100 meter, yes. right? Um, and then fourth place in the rowing. Yes. And then your third event was the power lift.
1: It was.
0: And how did that go for you? Well,
1: first, the one-minute row, I got my butt kicked in. I took fourth in the four-minute. Okay. I got my rear end handed to me in the one minute. <laughs> I, there's... What they did is not humanly possible. I just want like I'm like they all need tested. Test them. (laughs) I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Yeah, it was impressive. The powerlifting uh, was interesting because it was a moment you realized that you have to give everything you have every day. I weighed in at the lightweight division. And so I competed at the lightweight division. So the whole two weeks you're there, like you're training with everybody from other countries, you're doing all this, right? So Carolyn Duffy is Great Britain and she's their golden child for powerlifting in the heavyweight division. And her and I trained together for three days before we competed. So she's heavyweight, I'm lightweight, I got this. And she, we were in the locker room before, she was the only one here that can beat me is you. And I know I can beat her because I did in training. She's like, I'm glad you're a lightweight. And I was like, well,
0: I'm glad you're a heavyweight because I don't got to do it, right? Tell me about the event. How does it go? What does oh, powerlifting God. mean? I will tell you. Like, it was what do most, you have to do It was the in most that?
1: intense thing I've ever... It was, you know, the crowd for the sprint was so loud you couldn't hear him tell you to get on the line, right? That powerlifting room is pitch black with a spotlight on you. So it is intense. And mm-hmm. our powerlifting coach he's intense and he's incredible and i loved this man loved him so it's a paralympic lift so you are strapped down to the table from the waist down so you cannot use your legs and a bench press you use a lat, and i don't have one but i had worked really hard with mike i'm like i got this right so it's pitch black and you have people watching and spotters and you know you have to hit a certain point on your chest before you bring it up for it to qualify for a lift okay Somebody can help you rack or unrack it, but that's it. You have to hold it alone, bring it down alone, and push it back up alone. So you get three lifts. So the lightweight division is going, and then the heavyweight division is going. And I took gold with my second lift. I did not need to do a third lift, but I did it. I just didn't do as heavy as I needed to. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually down in the pit where you're waiting to get a medal, and I'm sitting there talking to Prince Harry. And the official comes over and says... Are you I said, I am. And he said, well, you actually weighed in 0.4 pounds over or 0.2. So it was some stupid number over for lightweight. You're in the heavyweight division. So you will take silver to Carolyn Duffy's gold. So excuse me, I don't get a third lift. Like, why wouldn't I get a third lift then against her? And he said, I guess you should have gave it your all your first three tries. So I'm standing there and I'm like, guess you should have gave it your all your first three tries okay okay I'm mad right like I am angry I'm like I'm gonna protest to the high heavens give me a third lift it's not my fault you can't weigh somebody in or that you don't know what the scale is so here I am angry we get up there and Carolyn wraps me in the UK flag and hugs me on the podium and says a whole lot of stuff in my ear that doesn't matter to anybody but her and I. Except for one thing she said, are you ready? And I was like, I am. And this actually was caught on camera, the hug and my face afterwards when I looked back out into the crowd. And I knew what she meant at that moment was are you ready to be Invictus? Which means unconquerable. And it wasn't until that moment that I realized that I don't give 110% in my whole life and everything that I do. I don't live my best version of me all the time. I pick and choose the situations that I'm going to do that in. Sometimes I make myself smaller. Sometimes I allow me to be tired or sometimes I allow pain or some form of excuse to come into my life. And it was at that moment that I realized I was finally ready to start living for the first time in my life. And I have lived one hell of a ride ever since.
0: So those words were really impactful to oh, you Oh God yeah, at that moment.
1: Yeah. For one, to have the official say, I guess you should have given it your only your first three tries. That was like a shot to the soul, right? Yeah. Like I'm. Were, hmm? were you mad at yourself? Were you mad at yourself? I was, because... I mean, I know you were mad at him,
0: and you're mad at the way, people, but are you are you mad at yourself in that I moment, I was so too? mad at myself, yeah.
1: because I was think like, everything, it ended up like a movie in my head for a second, like a very quick movie preview, from dropping out of college because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life and where I was going, to going into the military to getting hurt to becoming this person that's nothing but a patient at that point in time just not knowing what why am I even here I have this career that I like but I hate I'm bored I don't feel like my brain is being challenged I don't feel like I'm doing anything except working eating sleeping working out walking my dogs that's all I am at that point in time so when somebody says you should have tried harder Wow, yeah, I should have. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've tried really hard, which is why I survived. Mm-hmm. Or was that Karin pushing me and me not wanting to let her down? Mm-hmm. Where was I in that entire equation? And at that moment, I realized you are whole. And you are whole right now because you are more powerful than you ever thought you were.
0: How old were you at that moment?
1: Uh, what year is it? We're in 21, right? (laughs) Yes. So that was seven
0: years ago, and I just turned 39. So 32. So early 30s. You came home from those Invictus Games with a silver medal and a gold medal. Mm -hmm. Have you competed again at Invictus?
1: Not at Invictus. Okay. I made the Triumph Games in 2015. And what is that? So that was fun. Um, That was where it didn't matter your gender, your disability, or your age. We all competed against each other. Mm -hmm. So it was military. It was a TV show that we filmed that was aired on Veterans Day of 2015. Uh, We did a triathlon. We got to race a Roush Mustang, which was, holy cow, I think I was definitely made to, it was worth getting my license suspended at 16 at this exact moment. (laughs) I was made to be an insane fast driver. Like I was made to. I was made to be an adrenaline junkie. I was, and we had to play a video game. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And how did game. you
0: do in the Triumph Games? I
1: think I took sixth or seventh. Mm-hmm. I did. There was. Yeah.
0: And again, this is all genders. Uh, everybody's mixed in, mm-hmm. ages, gender. So there's no classes or no, featherweight, lightweight, none. heavyweight. Right? Um, Every like man that. for themselves. Yep, <laughs> That was uh, awesome. Have you have stayed involved mm-hmm. with? Wounded Warrior and with these competitions. So tell me a little bit about that. So now I am honored to be
1: a moderator for the Invictus Foundation back here in US. So there are two of us, soon to be three of us, that are USA moderators. So we connect ill, injured, and wounded servicemen and women, whether they've competed in the games or not does not matter, Mm -hmm. with opportunities in the sports world. To make them realize that they are able just differently. So 22 vets kill themselves a day on average. Mental health is a big deal for those of us that have been ill, injured, or wounded, or just seen something, Mm -hmm. right? It is. So we, I am very honored to be a part of this team and to be to represent the foundation and get to speak about the foundation and how the Invictus Games can help you and how to get involved and support the Invictus Games and support the athletes and support the foundation because it saved my soul like I can't say it saved my life my I wasn't gonna die at that point in time right I realized that's the most selfish thing to do it saved my soul so it's really important to tell that story and share that story and get more people driven to that. We just did a row competition with a whole lot of other countries, which was so much fun. And I had all of these people from the military and civilians rowing for me, for my team, which was awesome and submitting me their mileage. So it was just so much fun to get people involved and to drive people to the app. And... So they can see virtual experiences they can have. They can see in-person experiences they can have. To connect them with their branch of service for their Wounded Warrior team is pretty incredible as well. So I love the fact that my failure is going to be someone else's success. Like that is the greatest feeling ever.
0: You a couple of times could have been among those 22 vets a day though. Yes, You ma'am. did try to take your life a couple of times. Yes, ma'am. Do you share that with others and, and talk about what do you say to, to people and how do you share that experience? What is there for people to look forward to? So it's really hard. You know, two of my
1: dear friends shot themselves within four days of each other when I was active duty. That was awful. Awful. I was a Paul at one of them and it was really hard was really there are no words to describe the feeling that you get when you realize somebody was that alone and you were that person it is awful so I, I understand now more or less why I went through everything and why I did the paths and the things that I did and One thing that's the hardest thing to overcome to get people to see tomorrow is you have to feel no shame today. And that is a hard thing to do. It is a hard thing to do when you feel like you let somebody down. Or maybe you're not worth anything. What is my purpose? I see that with people. I have this conversation with a lot of vets and a lot of active duty. And their partners or their caregivers as well that are civilians because I can't tell you when it's going to get better. I can't tell you if it's going to get better. I can't tell you that you won't feel pain and I won't tell you that you won't have a nightmare. I can't tell you that the fear ever goes away. I can't tell you that there's not going to be moments that you want to jump out of your skin because of some things that you did or didn't do. I, I can't tell you any of that. I cannot. So I will do the same thing that Dr. Steven Annis did for me. I will make no promises. But I do promise that if you take your own damn life that you have no idea what you're made of. You have no idea what you're capable of and you have no idea of who needs you. And if you're willing to jeopardize that and throw that away, that somebody may need you, then go right ahead, I'll give you my own gun. But if you think for one instance that somebody may value from your failure, from your fault, from your pain, from your suffering, then share your story. Because the moment you start to talk about it, somebody's life gets saved. And that's what I have learned.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about that for just a second. Because you really do a lot of work right now in the arena of purpose and resiliency, right? I mean, this is your message to share with people Mm -hmm. why is that so important and how do you encourage or tell people to find that purpose in that dark moment where it just seems like there's nothing you
1: have to get comfortable with silence and being uncomfortable i tell all of my athletes i have 43 of them if you are not uncomfortable every single day You will never know how to overcome anything you won't i don't care what it is that makes you uncomfortable the conversation with a colleague the conversation with a spouse the workout the whatever it is you have to be uncomfortable every single day and when it is silent and that silence is deafening and that silence is terrifying because everything around you is quiet and you're sitting in that dark room the one thing that is not silenced is every last thing wrong in your head So you have to learn how to take those, compartmentalize them and say, why? I don't know why. So stop asking, stop asking why. And I think that my purpose was to not be ashamed to share that suicide is real, mental health is real, depression is real, fear is real, but so is success. And that's the story we forget to tell we because not a lot live to tell it I am NOT anything special I have not been through anything special my greatest legacy is going to be being forgotten that people hear this story but it makes them go tell their own it makes them go share their own that's when I won that's when my purpose will have been fulfilled and I'll be 103 years old because that's when I decided I'm going. (laughs) I I made that (laughs) plan. but I'll be 103. Mm -hmm. But I think that the beauty behind that silence and being uncomfortable is really finding what's on the other side of that. Like it's not all sunshine and rainbows, it's not. It is 100% not sunshine and rainbows. I had a very difficult conversation this morning because I'm a tough woman to be around. And I know that about myself. I am outspoken. I'm direct. I have zero fear in my life because I have nothing left to lose. I am resilient. And just walking in a room, I'm intimidating. That's not an easy person to be around or love. But I am loved and I am wanted and I am needed. All of those things that I make me a difficult person are the exact same things that made me survive. If I don't share that with people, they'll never know me. And that's why I walked alone for so long. So for people that are in that moment, you have to start to talk. Whether you want to or not doesn't matter. And I'm not saying go see a therapist. I have only talked to a therapist, I think, twice in my life. But I talked to other people that have been through something. It didn't matter what, just through something. And in talking and sharing that story, I realized that I don't need any answers. I just need one foot in front of the other, that's
0: it. I will disagree with your uh, evaluation that you are not special because I think you are a very special person. Thank you. Um, And I know that your health battle for yourself is not over. Correct. So you just had another surgery even this year related to your arms. And tell me where you are with that and you know what the prognosis is for you moving forward. So at this point I'm at prayer.
1: I don't know what will happen next. If it goes blue again, if it clots again, th- there is no plan for afterwards. If it happens again, there's no plan. There's nothing left to take out. We talk about, do we remove the collarbone and the second rib? If we do that, the skeletal structure will crumble. I'll probably lose the arm at that point in time. When they did the surgery originally, it was, I have no idea what your prognosis is. We're just gonna see. Mm
0: -hmm. And he
1: was honest. I make zero promises. So I have kept that mentality this whole time is that I make zero promises. But what I do know is that I take zero pain pills, zero muscle relaxers, zero anything because I want to feel every last ounce of this pain because it's letting me know that I'm okay. As long as I can feel it, my heart's still beating, my arm is still attached, and I'm doing okay. So my prognosis is if it turns blue, hit the oh shit button because we have no idea what we're going to do at that point in time. I'm not gonna live in fear. I'm gonna live in, I don't know. So I tattooed the Bible verse on my body because I don't know.
0: What advice or life experience can you offer to people who might find themselves in one of any of the situations that you have been in, Right where you have really faced um, a dark time call somebody and
1: start telling your story. Don't look at it like you're telling a sob story, which so many people are like, stop telling your sob. It's not a sob story. If you don't start somewhere, how are you ever gonna get to the end goal? How are you ever gonna get better? Just share your story, your struggle, your lack of value, your lack of purpose with somebody. Just start talking. Because when you start talking, you'll meet other people that can have that conversation with you. So find the people that say, I'm not sorry for you. I don't feel bad for you because I don't. I'm excited for you because at least you have the courage to talk.
0: Whether you're in the military or not, mental health is a a big thing, and I think we can all kind of look in our lives and think about people who might be struggling with something. Mm -hmm. You have lost friends to suicide. You have tried to commit suicide yourself. What can we do as friends and family members and loved ones for someone that we think is struggling in that moment? How can we help reach them Could somebody have done something for you in that moment that would have kind of brought you back a little earlier from the brink?
1: You know, that's a really hard question. And I think it's really hard because we are all very different people. And how we respond to people wanting to help is very different. Some people run away, some people open up. Some people shut down, some people get excited, some people wear a wonderful mask. So what can you do is give them your hand to hold. They may not need to talk right now. They may just need you to sit next to them in bed. They may not need you to fix, we don't need fixed. I just need you to sit next to me, that's it and eventually you'll sit long enough that I will start to grab strength from you.
0: There are so many amazing takeaways in here for me. First, for all of us to realize that everyone is capable of incredible accomplishment, no matter our physical condition. As Melissa said, people who have disabilities are not disabled, they are just able to do things differently. It takes a lot of courage for someone like Melissa to share the very honest and ugly details of her story. But it also shows what is possible when you believe in yourself, when you seek help from those around you, and when you show up when others ask for your help. I love Melissa's advice to all of us who want to help someone who is struggling. Just show up and sit next to them. You don't have to say a thing, and eventually, they will feel safe to share their struggles with you. Patience is difficult when you want to help someone who's suffering. If you know a military veteran who needs support, call the Veterans Crisis Line at 1-800-273-8255. I've put some additional resources for military veterans and non-military on the website, chrispeterson.com. Heroes come in all shapes and sizes. Melissa Caduti happens to come in a petite package on the outside, but her spirit is truly invictus, unconquerable. Thanks for listening. If you were inspired by this story, please do share the podcast and subscribe wherever you listen. I have many more incredible stories to share with you in just a moment.